0: Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and as always, you can see everything we're up to over at blisterreview.com. This week on the podcast, I'm talking to a guy that has one of the coolest jobs in the world. He's in charge of product innovation at Patagonia, and his name is Glenn Morden. I talked to Glenn about how in the world a person goes about getting a job like his, and then Glenn pulls back the curtain on the product design process at Patagonia, what he and his colleagues are currently most concerned with, and what sorts of projects are on the horizon there. So if you are interested in design, or cool new gear, or basically the future, I think you're going to appreciate this discussion. So here it is, my conversation with Patagonia's Glenn Morden. Glenn, how are you today, and where are you today?
1: Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. I'm just uh, sitting here at home in Ventura, California.
0: Well, I am excited to have this conversation with you. Um, I think we actually have Eric Hjorlifson to blame for this. Uh, it was a while back, and I was talking to Eric, and, and I don't even remember what we were talking about at the time, but he just said, you know, you really need to talk to Glenn Morden at some point. And, you know, if, if Hoji is telling me I need to talk to somebody, I, I, I just take that as gospel truth. And so, you know, here we are. But um, you probably have one of the, I'd say, more interesting job titles uh, maybe in the world. Would you mind uh, just kind of starting by telling us what is your official title at Patagonia and how long have you been in this role?
1: Yeah, I... Um... Built very lucky. There's not many days that go by that I don't say, man, I, I'm just the luckiest person on earth for what I get to do. But um, <laughs> so at this stage, my role is that I lead our product innovation group. And um, so that's really uh, a pretty cool role that allows me to, you know, work in a lot of different capacities of product creation.
0: I think your official title, do I have this right? It's like vice president of product innovation.
1: Yeah. Is that right? So I mean, that sounds pretty... <laughs> pretty out there. It's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty accurate though. I work as a VP of product innovation and that uh, spans everything from our materials uh, creation, our um, R and D, our advanced R and D through to product testing fit and our product development. So um, yeah, pretty much everything that goes into creating product at Patagonia.
0: Mostly as I've kind of, You know, tried to think through or envision your job, I just keep getting the image of like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory in my head. So I'm not sure that's exactly uh, when you open the door to go to work. I'm not sure that's exactly what it looks like in Ventura, but I don't know. That's kind of the image that's stuck in my head.
1: Yeah, not quite. (laughs) I honestly feel like I'm really lucky because I get to work in a capacity that really works across a lot of different teams and um, more so I work for everyone else. I definitely have had a super fortunate career as far as being a, a you know an outerwear designer and starting out as a backpack designer and wetsuit designer and just feel really lucky that I've been able to apply um, that journey at Patagonia and then now working in kind of a leadership role. Which allows me to, you know, help those who are now coming up and doing what I was doing when I first started. So um I definitely feel like that's where my sweet spot is, is that I, you know, get to help kind of carve out great process for those who are falling in behind me. So yeah, I definitely um and I feel like that's that's pretty cool. It's definitely hmm. pretty sweet to be able to now take all those things I learned along the way in my journey and then apply that to to the team that are kind of coming up now. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to actually talk a bit about this journey because I'm sure there are a number of people out there who are like, how does somebody get to be the like head of product innovation at Patagonia? So let's, let's back it up. Um, I'd love to just like kind of get back to the beginning. Where did you grow up and what were you into as a kid?
1: Yeah, that's, um, it's definitely a pretty fun story. So I, I love talking about it because um, it seems like it definitely took a lot of twists and turns. Um, I grew up outside of Toronto, Ontario and up in Canada. And I, as a kid, was most like uh, most others, definitely into all the outdoor sports possible. I think, funny story, talking to my mom the other day about it. And she was like, you know, you as a kid, I couldn't um, couldn't keep you from being restless. And the only way you would, would be kind of settled as a baby was, you know, getting long. She would walk me out in the, you know, spring winter up there and just do her walks. And there I was out, outside from just a baby. So, um, and then as most stories go, definitely, you know, into, into being outside was, was first and foremost, you know, within skiing in the winter time and playing ice hockey to, in the summer it was camping and, all the you know sports you have there and then everything from you know skateboarding and building stuff and and I think that's kind of like when I look back I'm like oh yeah I could kind of see a little bit of a bit of an indication of where things might head when it was like you know tinkering with gear when you're a little kid building a go-kart and running down a huge hill and being like oh yeah that didn't work out so good but to (laughs) uh try to convince your grade eight shop teacher that you know building a snowboard was a good idea and then That was like, oh, let's go and like take apart my dad's old ski boots and not tell him, and then make some bindings (laughs) and go to the local hill and see how that thing fared, which didn't go so great, but it exploded upon first descent. But uh, to, you know, like building skateboard ramps and, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. So we were pretty, pretty much like what I assume most kids were like, just up into anything you can get yourself into. So.
0: Was your dad mad about you taking apart his ski boots?
1: Um, I think I probably get the gear collecting from him. I think he had enough pairs kicking around that he didn't okay. quite get too bummed <laughs> out. I wouldn't take his like brand new, like okay. fresh pair of Koflax or whatever he had at the time. But um, yeah. Uh, But yeah, we kind of like refashioned some like sheet metal and some like, I think it was like just some like drywall nails and like, you know, slap this whole thing together, cut some water skis apart. And we're like, we got this, like this whole snowboarding thing was, we were going to nail this, but, um, yeah, that, that didn't quite pan out per se, but, um, it's all about the tinkering process from the get go is like, just trying to find ways to have fun, you know?
0: So you were kind of a born tinkerer. Um, but I'm curious if, you know, if just starting to tinker and pull stuff apart as a kid, How you look at that versus, um, say, the formal side of your education. Again, like, you're a guy who is the head of product innovation at Patagonia. I'd love to hear you speak to the kind of your formal education. What was that route? And did you feel like that was super, you know, kind of critical to getting you where you are today? Or are you kind of like, man, it really was about the tinkering?
1: Yeah, I think, like, it's a great question and I kind of want to say that there's like parts of it that if I look back on it, I definitely love the way it got put together and it wasn't by design, um, by any means, but like even back into high school, like learning about design from a standpoint of like drafting class and architecture early on, like that was something I, I gravitated towards. I was really lucky. I went to a a high school that offered those kind of classes and, um, so I was already kind of starting to do it, you know, but it was in my mind, it was the way I was doing it was definitely suited for my skill set. Cause you know, like I wasn't necessarily super artistic growing up in high school and what have you, but, um, but I was always like kind of into that like precision work and like, you know, you get into like drafting classes and like intro to architecture when you're in high school and you're like mechanical pencils or like, on ruler edges so you're getting into kind of like that precision work and at the same time I was obviously super into ski racing and my dad was a ski coach and let me tag along for a long time in like our little kind of local series when I was much too young to be on the team but by the time I finally turned I think 12 and 13 I finally got to be officially on the team so um so you know I was like starting to kind of get that like itch of that there's like a you know tuning a ski is just like doing some drafting you got to be pretty accurate to get good results and then when it gets a little bit more formal definitely is a little further down the line but um honestly I really didn't have the kind of like equation that you could study and design the things that you use outside that was like still kind of a black hole and but it wasn't till I took um kind of a turn after like my first degree I kind of focused on you know, kind of the general arts and kind of came out of it with a degree in geography, sustainability and fine arts. And, um, Hmm. and I started to kind of get into the artistic side. And and I remember kind of coming out of that degree being like, still haven't quite put the pieces together on where this is all going to go. And I was like, I'm going to go to design school. And, you know, product design school seemed kind of interesting. And I had a really close friend who had like, actually been uh, taking a course in industrial design. And he was, Building a um, his thesis was building an uh, impact kind of flotation for water skiing for slalom water skiing. At the time, I was definitely doing that in the summer, and I was like, "Man, that's pretty crazy! Like, that's really cool! Like, you're (laughs) actually doing something that we love to do in the summers, which is water ski, and this is your school." And it was like that was like the little blip in the radar. Mm -hmm. And then, like my favorite moment in schooling was when. I was in, so I did my, um, went to design school in Toronto. And at the time I had just come off taking a year off of, um, school and doing the traditional Canadian thing, which is grab your rucksack and go traveling around the world. And I did that with like a focus on surfing and like just traveling and exploring the world and South Pacific. And I was like, this is awesome. And, but it was kind of like really starting to align that, like, that was the passion is like being dedicated to your sport, whether it be the mountains or the ocean was like, so driving. So that put me back in school. And I was doing a general design program, where you're exposed to all of the different disciplines, whether it be graphic design, whether it be interior or space design, or be industrial design, um, and more focused on product. And when I came out of that, I was like, really sure because I had had this year off where I've been like, you know, learning about what what drives my passion and then to like then apply that to education I was like okay I am really like set up here and but the surfing thing had kind of was a bug and it kind of caught me so before I could even finish my first semester in um in Toronto it kind of was like okay the only place on the map in Canada you can surf is either the east coast or the west coast and I was kind of like this is a no-brainer I'm right? move out west so piled in a buddy's station wagon and um, we drove uh, to Vancouver and I transferred into the industrial design program I found this kind of passion that was was actual product design versus the other disciplines and it was just it was perfect you know I had I'd had been out west before I had done like the pilgrimage to Whistler Blackcomb as a on spring break and took my at the time 200 centimeter slalom race skis and you know, mm-hmm. dropped into the West Cirque of Whistler and, you know, Tom, <laughs> Tom hawked my way down that and was just like, man, oh man, like as a ski racer in Western New York growing up, you're just like, those are some big mountains, you know? So, um, and then formally, uh, with the education side, the, my, I guess my fondest memory was in my second year class, um, of industrial design, we had a class called soft design and, I really didn't know what I was getting into on this one, but it was like, you know, just a course that you had to take. And I kind of thought that it was maybe be like some derivative of a furniture design or, you know, like sculpture or something. And so I show up and the teacher is one of the early designers that helped uh, start when Arcteric started. And it turns out this was a backpack design class. And we we're wow. we're going to be making like chalk bags for climbing and, you know, uh, hip packs for rock climbing. And I was just like, my mind was blown. I couldn't <laughs> believe that this is, this was real. Like that we actually get to, to make all of the cool stuff that I had been using my entire life. I was like, this is insane. Like, this is the best ever. Like what a perfect fit. Like all along I've been tinkering and messing around with my gear. And then all of a sudden I, I kind of happily accident find out that like, I get to get taught this as a kind of discipline and uh and it was perfect you know like I thank this teacher's definitely shaped the everything I owe today is definitely a, I throw a, a tip of the hat to her because she mm-hmm. believed in me and at first it was like cool so you guys are going to sew you're going to design build sew your own design and I was just like oh my god like I've never sewn a thing in my life and I was like I remember saying to the teacher I was like I'm going to build a backcountry ski and snowboard pack." And she's like, you're absolutely out of your mind. You don't even know how to sew. You should probably like ratchet it back a bit and take something a little bit more like digestible that you can handle. And I was like, no, just give me a chance. I swear I'll do it. And um, sure enough, with a fair bit of fortitude and a lot of like late nights and bleeding fingers, I pulled it off. And Hmm. that was it. And I was like, you know what? I kind of learned that in design, if you really put your heart and mind into something and follow your passion – um it works out and it just like i just was really lucky that i found someone like that that really spoke to me and and honestly that i still take those lessons i learned then today and if as a designer you have a passion and you have a skill set if you apply those things you can always kind of like um create great design because it's driven by your personal passion and uh and yeah so hmm. mm. Okay, so
0: how old are you when you're wrapping up design school?
1: Well, as I said, so it was my second kind of yep. go around the track there. So I finished design school when I was 28. Okay. Yeah.
0: And then you're like, I'm going to try to go get a job somewhere, I I guess. Is that
1: yeah, how that went? And so I was really lucky. Again, the design community in Vancouver is really strong. And it's pretty small in the outdoor community. And so I was really lucky. Um, I think after that second year, there's one more like little little journey when I I decided that I was like, I really took to heart that like the whole course was based around like, have an idea, build it, test it. And then you know how you did. Like your design is not graded on like what it looks like. It's like how it works. And mm-hmm. So after my second year, I actually did an exchange. I went back to the South Pacific and lived in Australia for a year and learned Hmm. to shape surfboards, did an exchange there, worked as an engineer in a plastics manufacturing company. And then I came back and did my final year, and my thesis was in wetsuit design. And so over the course of that year, I was really lucky that that same teacher um, helped give me some work. And um, Hmm. so I was really like – um, fortunate to be able to start that kind of like integration into the community by um, doing some backpack concept work, and by time you get to your final year, you you know you present your thesis, and again mine was in wetsuit design. The local outdoor community comes to that, and um, I was really lucky that I got a great job at Mountain Equipment Co-op um, as a hard goods designer. And that was sorry, Glenn. Say that again. Where where was this job? This was at Mountain Equipment Co-op, so MEC in Vancouver, and that's Mm -hmm. like a fantastic outdoor brand um, that does everything from outdoor gear through. So at the time, my job as a hard goods designer was working on backpacks, gloves, sleeping bags, tents, and we were doing some a little bit of stuff on wetsuits. So um, yeah, straight into it. I was really lucky. I mean. I think that the industrial design program at the school now—it's called Emily Carr Institute of Design—and so again, that self-kind of driven thing was—you know—a lot of students would be doing automotive design or you know interior design or medical design, and I was one of one of two of of my class that focused on um, outdoor product design. So I kind of knew that I I kind of found that connection between designing the products that you get to use and your passion. So. I kind of, hmm. I kind of designed my thesis around my interest, and I was like, "What better hmm. way to like surf more than do a thesis in cold water wetsuit design?" So,
0: would it be skipping forward ahead too much to ask then? When did you start working for Patagonia?
1: Yeah, no problem. I mean, I I was really lucky. Uh, as I said, great great job out of out of design school. Learned a ton about um, you know this great design process, and. Uh, Patagonia was looking for a equipment designer and a luggage designer and having, uh, that be my focus at, uh, MEC was all those, those other products. So when I, mm-hmm. um, Patagonia was looking for equipment designer at the same time, they were getting into the wetsuit business. And so it was just really great stars aligning that, uh, hmm. they could get two for one. And, uh, I also could get to work on helping them launch the wetsuit category. So, um yeah wild ride there we helped set up wetsuits and um started kind of the surf program um into hard goods for them and then um you know helped worked on the luggage program for a couple of years and then really luckily um had another opportunity to kind of mentor under our, our snow sports outerwear designer at the time and i was like yeah i'll go i'll, I'll do whatever you want me to sweep floors and cut paper whatever you need like Um, so I kind of took on and really luckily got the opportunity to take that category on at Patagonia. So, um, Mm -hmm. and that kind of took me for almost like seven, eight years of dedicated working on snow sports at Patagonia. So,
0: so what year is it when you first get to Patagonia and start working on the wetsuit? Uh,
1: that was 2007.
0: 2007. Yeah. Okay. Trying to keep the timeline of all this straight. Um, this is a hell of a ride I know, you're, like all- surfing in Australia and just dis- building everything, designing everything and like all outdoor goods. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the, this is a lot. Um, so you're working in the snow sports category. And then again, I mean, you, this just, that's going well. And you kind of keep evolving your own job and moving or evolving the positions you're holding at Patagonia. Yeah. Um, that's the story here, I guess.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think the moral of the story thus far is that when you like, it was just so awesome learning that you can create the products that you use and applying mm-hmm. that to how you um, approach problem solving. Um, and that's kind of what I got. Was really lucky is I've, I've all along had really great mentors and people that have like pushed me both in skiing myself when I was younger to. Um, great bosses and at the time I had a a boss at Patagonia when I started doing snow sports and you know I took that on as like coming from more of a uh, product as gear or clothing as gear point of view so like because I had a lot of experience designing backpacks and wetsuits and this kind of more applied product versus in like gloves and sleeping bags and tents like they're super functional right so when I came into the outerwear side of things it was you know, new territory for me. So it was like learning a new craft, but taking my ability to, you know, do industrial design product solving, um, you know, it's the same process. And so, you know, having a boss that was like, well, hey, if you want to like create a new calendar, we'll create a new calendar. And I was like, okay, so if you, what you're telling me is I can like actually do a bunch of research way earlier than the normal calendar. And it kind of like snowballs. Once you start designing process, I think you like, then start creating efficiencies. And then like, so I was really lucky. And then I saw like the opportunity for us to really like refine our design process. And I think that's what really helped me, um, become a good role model within my peers and then really allow myself to, um, you know, just learn more and then start working with other team members and then it kind of accelerated through, you know, I think a good design process can be related to a good product creation process and then, um, the product follows, so to speak.
0: Yeah. And this kind of brings us up to sort of, I think what you kind of now do in your day to day. And you already mentioned this at the, at the top of the conversation that you are these days, it's a lot of leadership and you are, you know, overseeing um, a number of departments. And um, I'd love to have you kind of break down a bit for me these different departments or these different teams that you're talking about and sort of how they all kind of interconnect.
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, talking about the design process can be a little clunky. It's definitely pretty uh, dynamic, but I'll try to kind of keep it pretty linear because I think it's a little Mm -hmm. easier to understand. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the the opportunity that that I really am the most thankful for at Patagonia is the ability for us to help kind of reshape our R&D process. And really what that means is we have kind of brought that R&D over the last 10 years back in-house. And it's not for all products, but it's definitely for the products that really drive the categories and the core sports and the core categories, whether it be both sportswear, lifestyle into technical, is that we really try to start off with a problem statement. And whether that be a material problem statement or a product problem statement and end use problem statement. And then we kind of go from there. And from there, we we set up this facility, which we call the Forge. And that is there to allow designers to tinker from start to finish. So if they have yeah. an idea and when it comes to a new, new snow jacket where they want to build a new powder skirt, and there's been one aspect of it that's really been kind of um, challenging them, they have the ability to go into the design studio And we have all the machinery that we have at our factories, and the designer can then really refine. They can make ten different powder skirts for their solution, and if that idea never takes off, they've tried everything. And it's really that ability to like go back to that initial problem statement is like, is this too bulky or is this not durable enough? And um, so that's what we've built up with our R&D studio, and that's kind of like I think what we talked about the other day. But like this is really what's super special for product design at Patagonia these days is like, and it's, it's not like this is something that we invented, you know, like Mm -hmm. the best part about it is this is the way Yvonne was doing it back in the day. They Mm -hmm. were building their climbing gear in the winter and then they were testing it and using it all summer and it inspired ideas and that's really the formula. And so it's kind of cool that, you know, in a world now where innovation is, you know, being used so, widely our innovative model is as classic as it gets it's just do the right thing make awesome product and refine it and so the way we kind of have it mapped out is you know we have set up our innovation team to really kind of work on like various levels of problem solving whether it be really long-term you know large impact reduction problems that we're facing in in society today and those problems could be anywhere from, you know, five to 10 to 15 years out and they could be even further. And those are really looking at like chemistry solutions that will help um, us as a company solve those big picture problems. And the the area where I think we were talking more intimately about the other day was kind of our three to five year advanced R&D process. Mm-hmm. And what we have within our, our Forge group is a team that really focuses on, problem solving and form factor discovery that is got the time to really incubate. And so they have the time to really work on something and they're paired with our design team, which makes the products that we all see and use every day. And those guys kind of work on a two to three year. And so there's a Mm -hmm. lot of overlap in those five years uh, to what you guys see. And so a classic example is ideas come from anywhere at Patagonia. They could come from um, core athlete use ambassador, um, Experience they could come from customer experience and sometimes they could come from you know business adjacencies whether it's we see something in another industry that's really inspiring, um, and so once we kind of identify a problem, we then kind of have the resources to say okay let's go out there and develop a new material. Um, we have a we're paired with a material development team that can go and explore the space whether it's you know we want to find something that's more breathable, more waterproof, more durable. Um, And so once those guys have kind of charted ahead and they're like um, discovering that, you know, that fabric solution, um, we then have this advanced R&D team that can work in the design studio alongside our like core snow sports designer. And that group can brainstorm and tackle it from all areas. So we can get it from the fabric idea. We can get it from the kind of core use idea. And then we can get it from like the actual building idea. Does that kind Mm -hmm. of make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. And, and I think too, like, so there are the folks there that are kind of working in this three to five year element, but then there are other folks that are kind of looking more into kind of like a a longer term, say five to 15 year range. And, and I guess the job there is to, as you mentioned, like with, with chemicals figure out and forecasting and really trying to see like how similar or different are the materials that we're using today how's that, what's that going to look like a decade from now? Where, where, where might we be able to go? Is that, that fair enough?
1: Yeah. And I think right now we're like, we're definitely in a place where I don't think we've been in set. Is there such a sense of urgency where I think that right now we're really seeing like this acceleration of like our impact is being pretty widely recognized. So I think right now, I think there's a moment in time where we're really learning, um, all of the impacts that things have, that, that the products that we make in the world are having, and I think we're really kind of trying to get up to speed very quickly. So I think more so than forecasting, I think we're really like mm-hmm. being super diligent about the things that are happening and
0: to to try to reduce the impact of making these products. That's a significant or kind of chief concern in what folks are looking at.
1: I think so. I mean. The Patagonia's business model has always been build the best product, um, do un- do no unnecessary harm, and use business to inspire. And I think these days, like um, it's just not the way it once was. I remember, you know, ten years ago, we were like a great quality product that lasts a long time is good enough. I think what we're realizing now is that it can't just be a long-lasting product and a good quality product. It also has to be like somewhat contributing to making things better mm-hmm. and i think the increase of using recycled materials has shown great um you know great direction and progress but that's just scratching the surface and i think the ability to build um, more circular economies with you know recycling and also repurposing gear and you know we have the worn wear program where we actually can keep products in the wild is, you know, these things, everything we can do, and we're learning as much as we can. And so we're by no means saying, oh, we've figured it out. But what we're saying is that every time we get a new idea, it's like really important to like resource it. And I think that's where we're at right now as a brand is that we're, you know, staffing up to be able to solve these problems.
0: Yeah. So related question And I want you to answer this, like primarily with your designer hat, your product designer hat on, right? Yep. True. True or false? Products are getting so dialed these days that now it's less about sort of we can't make this stuff that much better than it currently is. So it is primarily about impact reduction. True or false?
1: Uh, I wish there was like three ways to answer that or two different, true <laughs> well, true and false. And we've, got, we've got a minute, yeah. We, if it's us a your, multiple three, choice, your three ways. It's, if it's a multiple choice, it's A, B, and C. Okay. And yes, I think gear is getting as good as it can get right now, but as a core user, I just love where we're at in the moment because we are refining the gear that we're using so much. And I mean, maybe I'm too close to it, but I swear like what a jacket feels like this year from two years ago to five years ago, it just feels like it is like years ahead. And, um, what I love about it is we're simplifying and not just us at Patagonia, but I think the industry at large are simplifying our, the gear that we're using systems are getting more refined and more precise and it leads to better product. And the simplest product is the best product. So I think that stuff is evolving and, you know, we're seeing less bells and whistles, um, now, at the same time, all of that does make a less impactful product. If it's easier mm-hmm. to build, it's more efficient to build, it's easier to repair, it lasts longer because it's less clunky, then all those things um, add to that impact reduction. So I kind of can play both sides of that argument. Um, and as like just a passionate core user, man, I just think every year stuff just gets better and better. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, how can you make it better? That's like the million dollar question. But I think going back to those experiences that people have and like shaving grams here and there just seems to make people happier and happier. And when it, like, I just look back to 10 years ago with the gear and you're like, I can't believe we could actually even climb up that mountain wearing that stuff. But mm-hmm. it was it was fun back then and it's still fun now. And I think that at the end of the day, that's what drives the refinement of gear. But And then as I said, like, the simplification is surely making product better. And then our ability to f- be able to source and create ecosystems for fabric and you know technology inputs has drastically created much less impact. So um, hmm. but is it enough? I'll say no. So I mean we have to we gotta constantly be looking for refinements in and, and everything we can do. We should just keep trying harder.
0: Yeah. And I guess if it wasn't clear what I was, what I was trying to get at from that question is if from your vantage point, you're like, man, stuff is so good right now. We can get such breathability out of pieces that are still warm, or we can get I like, if you're like, I love where the breathability levels are, even on, you know, pieces that offer a lot of weather protection, you know? So obviously the step of like, man, if we can figure out how to do impact reduction on all of those products that's huge but i wondered if from the designer point of view you were like man i still think i think we're early stages i you know what i mean like i think it can get so much better personally as somebody who reviews a ton of gear i think stuff is just getting really good right now i'm maybe i just lack the imagination right to see like i don't really know how it gets leaps and bounds better than where we really are
1: Yeah, and I mean, that's – I kind of, again, have two answers there because I want to answer the question about where – how we make it better. And I I feel like we're just – we keep scratching the surface and going deeper and deeper on solving those problems that you're talking about. And, like, what we think now is, like, fantastic. It's just going to get better as far as the gear side. And I think Mm -hmm. what's really cool about this time we're in within the outdoor space and the outdoor industry – is that the ability to get better inputs to those products is becoming more readily available. And I think yep. the consumer's um, desire to, to do better with their purchasing um, is also helping. Like we're really lucky, and I, and I think we are just scratching the surface. And I desperately, I call myself the internal optimist. Internally, I'm really positive because I really believe that deep down we're turning a corner and we are going to be making better choices in our product. And down the road, we're going to look back and be like, Oh my God, this product is so much more responsible. It is way better for the customers that are using it. And we've really done a good thing. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of hope. Okay, And I totally believe that this can happen with a balance of making the most technical advanced product. And making it super responsible at the same time, I do not think they're mutually exclusive. I think for sure we can like, we can both like keep evolving um, the level of the gear and also like its ability to make products more sustainable, more responsible. What are one
0: or two of your favorite products that you've worked on at Patagonia?
1: I think that as a designer, you get to work on a lot of problems and. Some of them don't quite um, they keep; they stay with you. And so, I mean, I wanted to tell you that the pass layer was definitely one of the favorite projects that I've worked on because it's something that's been near and dear. Um, it was one of the one of the projects that I've worked on in all the different iterations with a couple different designers along the way and a bunch of athletes along the way. But I want to say the my favorite product that I've worked on recently was the, the Dissensionist ct touring kit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i want to say that because and i thought about that actually this morning before we were getting on this call here is that it's my favorite because it's not done and it's hm. still a problem that i haven't totally mastered and i love what we've done with the past there i feel like we made it an amazingly versatile um, all-round you know powder hunting kit that you can use both inbounds out of bounds you can ski turn it you can uh, storm ride in it, like it, it's just fantastic, right? And uh, like it's a passion project. Like, I love the fact that we made like an awesome free ride product for for folks, and you know, and it's always going to get better, and that product will kind of incrementally improve year after year because we'll keep fine tuning it. But with the dissensionist that thing dates back to many different versions, and why that's one of my favorites is because it's not done, and um, I think what we've done so far. Is really cool about bringing this concept of making a more comfortable, breathable system for ski touring, yet at the same time giving you like awesome weather protection. But what I'm excited about is I really think that that's, that te- that concept of breathable, waterproof membranes is going to improve, and we're just starting to like understand what moving in the mountains is all about. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of my favorite, even though it's the hardest one I'm working on and still working huh. on. Yeah. Huh.
0: Can you say a word more about that you just said we're just starting to understand movement in the mountains?
1: Yeah, and I think that from that standpoint we we kind of talk about active insulation or active membranes and kind of active protection and when I say moving the mountain moving in the mountains, I guess it kind of mean moving in the mountains more comfortably. And Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is that we've moved in the mountains pretty efficiently and pretty effectively for a long time. And what I love about this time we're in now is that we're able to work on outerwear that allows us to be, you know, well protected, but allows it to breathe more, be more comfortable, and be able to keep your kind of layers intact for longer. And I think in the kind of more classic ski touring model, you had a breathable Uh, hard shell which you know you could only use it to a certain amount of output and then you had to kind of throw it in your pack and then you had your mid layer and your base layer and i think now we're kind of kind of fine-tuning these systems of dress where you can actually throw your ski touring shell on and keep it on for most of the day and Mm -hmm. you know the the holy grail would be able to like be able to put your shell on and take not have to take it off on the up and then be able to you know shred a sweet line on the way down and be just as comfortable Mm -hmm. And for us, we put a ton of work into the um, dissensionist jacket and pant. And that was really our goal was to make like an awesome ski touring kit that you could, you know, be able to be like hunting, hunting pow lines in the interior of BC. And um, if it's dumping snow, you got your jacket on and get to the top and, you know, do the transition and wear the same jacket down. And we're pretty psyched so far. But being the internal optimist, I know there's it's just going to get better.
0: Okay, um, I asked my my two guys. We now, I'm almost starting to think of both of them as our outerwear gurus. Um, our managing editor, Luke Kappa, and, and Sam Shaheen, uh, our senior editor. Um, Sam is, is and shall always be our original outerwear guru here at Blister, but um, Sam and Luke are just so on point when it comes, you know, I mean, on a lot of things, to be honest, but, uh, you know, both of them, uh you know, study design and are, are are very involved on on uh on a, on the apparel end of things. And so I asked them to to uh to weigh in with a few questions and then within like four minutes they fired back. I was just like, I shouldn't have done this conversation. I just should have let Luke and Sam talk with you and I could have just sat in the back and, and you know drank a beer while you guys had a smart conversation. But um but I did want to ask you a couple of the things that uh that um, that Luke and Sam brought up. Um, One of the things that Luke asked was, are there any areas, let's say in the realms of like materials, construction, finishing or fit analysis where you are seeing a plateau or where do you see the most potential for improvement?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, um, yeah, I would, can I sit in the back with a beer and, and listen yeah, to the banter? Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you and I, yeah, we'll just... Let, let them... No, the, no, you can't actually, because you okay, kind of yeah, yeah, do yeah, actually sorry, have sorry. to answer this one.
1: Um, right now, I'm super excited about this concept of active insulation
0: uh-huh. and
1: um, synthetic insulation to be more specific um, because I think that for most of us that are kind of in that ski touring kind of focus, we end up doing a lot of stop and starting. The best time to go skiing is when it's dumping snow and it's generally pretty medium to kind of not, not crazy cold. You know, it's like that zero to or negative five Celsius to zero when it's just like, when you're a kid, you remember when you go out and build a fort and you know, outside and you're just like playing with, with the snow, it's the best ever. And that time when you're ski touring for me is when you get the wettest. And so Mm -hmm. it's just very, I I feel like we are really, there's a lot of great exploration happening right now on how to make a product that will actually work when gets wet and dries quick. And so the things that I'm like getting really kind of fired up on is like this concept that it's solving a problem, both performance and its ability to be a useful piece of gear. And so, you know, like if you've got an, awesome insulated jacket but when you throw it in your pack on a transition and you throw your like wet skins full of snow in there and then all of a sudden your super warm jacket's soaking wet and it's useless well then you that it's not that great right and so now these days with where we're going with active and synthetic insulation is like when it gets wet it still works really well and then the ability for it to dry super quick and then also be able to wear it when being active is like that feels like a really cool breakthrough, and definitely something that's changed my quiver, because it's allowed us to like um, think a little differently how you dress, because you can move faster, you can move lighter. Um, so that one's pretty like near and dear. And then again, I go back to the way the, how quickly shells are evolving. I think we're you know really learning what what protection really needs to be, and um, so I I hope that we can unlock that even further. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a plateau. I kind of, instead of a plateau, I kind of see these as like these portals or gateways to like the next big thing. And I feel like there's a lot of those right now. And so that's kind of fun time to be in. And again, that's that optimism kind of poking through, but I definitely see us getting, getting more, like things are going to get more comfortable. And when you're out there and you're kind of struggling and having your gear be the last thing you're worried about, like I think that's going to be pretty sweet.
0: You already mentioned you work with a number of Patagonia's athletes. Um, I'd love to hear, and I'm this is kind of putting you on the spot, I guess, but which ones are the most involved or interested in the product innovation process? And I think this could you could either answer this in terms of like one or two individuals, or like, oh, the skiers seem more into it than the climbers, or. You should throw somebody under the bus here, I think. Maybe that's what I'm trying to get you to do.
1: Yeah, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> no way. I'm not doing that. Okay. Anyhow, um, I would say that we have a pretty quirky tribe. And um, I actually sent out a note to a couple other designers just to get some some feedback from them. And um, I liked how, I'll paraphrase and butcher this one, but one of our designers said that the quirky crew that surround patagonia's product both ambassadors core users guides customers there's a ton of passion there and so what's really fun as a designer we have a ton of people that are so pumped to kind of get involved and we actually have a really cool field testing program um, where we do use core users we use athletes ambassadors um, to test our product and we just get so much information from them And Hmm. there, everyone like has a different aspect. And like, as a designer, it's our job to translate all that feedback. And it could be coming from a really core end from like one of our kind of, you know, endurance athletes all the way to um, one of our big wave surfers. Like everyone has like a different specialty that they bring. So like, I can't throw anyone under the bus because like we have, and I think that's what's really cool about our community is like, everyone has their own point of view and it's the ability for a designer and a team to take all those points of view and kind of translate that into the best product. I feel like that's part of the design process and that's what, what the customer gets is that translation.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah. Hmm.
0: Okay. I have another question from Luke. It's kind of from Luke and Sam and, okay. and this one just cracked me up. Uh, so bear with me cause I'm going to pretty much read this verbatim. Why do you think softshell products like the Knife Ridge slash Knife Blade haven't been very successful? We, meaning Luke and Sam, uh, absolutely love these products and frequently despair over their death. Mm-hmm. So do you think the consumer will ever be able to widely accept not fully waterproof soft-shells like the Knife Blade? I'm not done yet. Luke's follow-up question. Follow-up. Please make more stuff out of PowerShield Pro. Sam and I would throw a party if we could get another product like the knife blade or old Alpine Guide pants. And Sam's response to that was we would throw a huge party.
1: Awesome. (laughs) That is all. Well, my first answer to the question is you are not alone. However, um, it is a the soft shell space is uh, it's always been a challenging one because you can't make any promises. And what I mean by that is you can't say it's guaranteed to keep you dry or it's guaranteed Mm -hmm. to keep you breathable. It's just really good at doing everything. And I think Mm -hmm. like to, I'll ask them a question back. And Mm -hmm. I think what happens is at the end of the day, and I'm not going to be too facetious here is that a lot of people can really afford to get a primary piece of gear and they get really like excited about one tool to do the trade. And, the soft shell for most folks is kind of a quiver piece, meaning that you add mm-hmm. it to your like system. And so like, if you're flying yeah. in on a hut trip and you know, the weather's going to be like, you know, you're going to the interior of your you're flying in for a week or you're winter camping, you might have inclement weather. You like that, like gray area. If it's a hundred percent going to work, keep you dry or be breathable enough, like you got to kind of have that guarantee and that absolute. And I think for me, that's where I've always struggled personally. And I think, we have to figure out a way to tell that story better because on the flip side of it, every single person who uses those types of products from any brand is like, this is the best ever. Like we love this stuff, but it's ability to Mm -hmm. tell people how to use it and know that it's going to work when it, when it works, it works really well. But on the flip side of that, Mm -hmm. when it doesn't work, it doesn't work super well either. So, and what Mm -hmm. I mean by that is if you do take your, um, Kind of soft shell out and then you expect it to perform the same way as your waterproof breathable in a downpour then you kind of get caught and i think that's where that like it's it's the toughest thing and I'd, like if that would be another favorite product of mine it's definitely goes into like our, our old reconnaissance product mm-hmm. which was a hybrid soft shell and mm-hmm. um that was like the i guess it's called the predecessor um to the uh dissensionist and that was the whole space that we struggled with too, is like, it's it's the perfect piece when it's the perfect piece. But yep. when you need something to do um, more than one duty, I think that's where, we, that's where soft shells have been the, the tricky one. However, hmm. let's just say we're working on it and we're trying our hardest <laughs> to crack that code. So I think hmm. it's going to happen because we all know that it, there's a reason why those are our cult favorites.
0: Yeah. Hmm. And it is funny. I mean, it, it feels like, the people who are kind of more in the know, you know, uh, well you and Luke and Sam and other people who are really thinking hard about these systems and applications of soft shells versus hard shells. It seems like the more you're actually thinking through this stuff, those are the people who are the biggest advocates of soft shells, right? Totally. And fair to say?
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, we had yeah. a, when we launched our nano air product, for example, it was like so cool for people to like put it on and like Mm -hmm. once you put it on you're like oh yeah i totally understand what's happening here it's just soft and comfortable and breathable insulation and Mm -hmm. i think the soft shell thing is the same thing like once you get past the trust and you get out into the environment and you start using it you're just like this is superior and this is amazing um but i guess at the at the like what do you, the cash register or on the rack when you're like, oh, do I go like, guaranteed waterproof or do I go super breathable? And then what happens when I want to go out and I don't know if the weather is going to stick to its guarantee? You know, so um, it's just one of those things. If I could just give everyone a, a soft shell and we'd we'd all be uh, converts. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> hmm.
0: I've got a super nerd question from Sam. Mm -hmm. And I love this question because it is fully nerd. So uh, I think you will appreciate it, uh, hopefully. Um, Fastening technologies, things like zippers, Velcro, or snaps. These fastening technologies haven't really changed much in decades. Does Patagonia put time into innovating these types of technologies, or do they already work so well that it isn't necessary?
1: Sweet. Sweet. Well, I think we've had a good conversation so far. So you'll know my answers before I even say it, but I know we're definitely trying to discover every aspect of trying to improve things. So we've got great partnerships with our um, trims and supply partners and we we're out there in the same environment, having the same struggles and we constantly are looking for new ways to simplify. And it goes back to that simplification. So if you Mm -hmm. can, do something that doesn't require a piece of Velcro or a zipper or a snap, and it'll still effectively work where that's better solution. Um, that being said, can we improve the durability, the material content of our trims and supplies? Absolutely. And we want to make things easier to use, better to use with gloves on that don't freeze up that work well when wet and have those durability can be repaired in the field. So we're constantly, like even though we don't actually manufacture those parts, We have great partners and we're constantly asking them to refine things and so we actually have a whole department that works on that and that's their only role is problem solving with our um, trim suppliers and so those guys are like another um, part of the equation that um, is part of our kind of design process so When a designer is like, okay, cool, I got this really good idea for a powder skirt, but I don't know how to fasten it. Or I've got this really awesome interface between my boot gator and my boot, but I don't have this perfect part. Then that team can kind of like really gel together and kind of solve that problem. Mm -hmm. Mm.
0: Mostly I wanted to ask that just so I could call Sam a nerd. And I just also love the idea of thinking about like Velcro and snaps and zippers as a technology, something I don't really tend to think of. So th- th- hence the question. You gave a very solid answer.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, it's all in the details, right? Like it's the touch point. Like
0: it's all in the details. Every single yeah. thing
1: you touch and like, honestly, the zipper on your jacket, you, how many times do you do that up and down every single day? Right. right? How many right. times zippers you tie your do- shoes? You're like every step you take, it's yeah. because you like those touch points, like and I always say this, like product is like 80% like in the design and then 20% refinement in the details is like, that's what you get evaluated on. All the hard work that like yeah. goes into it. Yeah. Like people only notice those little tiny things that don't work. And that's yep, what exactly. drives You, you know?
0: don't think about zippers at all until they don't work. And then it's the only thing you think about.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And yep. honestly, that's something that like, it's pretty cool. It's not quite as glamorous as thinking about like some of the other sides of innovation, but that's some of the things that we think about as designers is like, how's that zipper get put into the jacket versus how it gets taken out to be repaired versus hmm. if it does break in the field, you know, like that's part of our design ethos is like being field repairable. So like, mm-hmm. is there a backup? Is there like, what? what's the customer going to do if all of a sudden they have a catastrophic malfunction? Can we fix it? Can you fix it yourself? Can you like use a ski strap to kind of get through the day. Um, So I think we have to be like the bigger picture on product is like those details are like, man, that's what keeps you up at night for sure.
0: Mm -hmm. Another question from Sam and I I like this one. It it touches on stuff that we have already spoken to in this conversation, but I'm going to maybe see if I can't get you to tie a little bit of like a percentage to this, a percent number Sam was asking um, how much time goes into innovating lower impact technologies that perform similar to current technologies versus coming up with completely new concepts, right? So we, we, we said you're doing both, yeah. but is there a way to kind of quantify that? Like sort of if, if we start with 50-50, you know, which side sort of gets more attention, I think is his question,
1: yeah i mean the the beauty of the way we're set up these days is we're really lucky that we have teams that are dedicated to both areas so in the past, I would say that maybe it's always an afterthought to like have to go back and do your extracurricular homework, whereas these days we've kind of said that the only way forward is to make sure we're doing everything as good as possible and so mm-hmm. and on the flip side, like innovation doesn't just happen because you want it to, and sometimes ideas aren't really they haven't quite come to the surface. So at the same time as you're waiting for the next big thing, or you're like pulling all the levers to like, let that happen. You're also going through the process of, of improving. And I think that's what the balance of our R and D process is, is that we are constantly iterating and constantly making things better and leaving like no stone unturned. So we, our team is like, okay, cool. So that has like 60% 60% recycled content in it. Okay, how can we get it to 70? How can we get it to 75? And at the same time, we might discover that there's a whole new like, way to solve that problem. And then it's like, go right back to the drawing board. And so, but we do that every time we make a decision with that lens that we're trying to do, um, you know, make things, cause that no unnecessary harm that's in our mission statement. So I don't think we ever really take a break on it. Is the kind of like the mm-hmm. short answer? And yeah, we're and always it, <clears throat> trying to to do the best practice that we can. And it
0: sounds a bit to me like you like really. I mean, it sounds like you have enough different people working in these different areas that you kind of get to work with on a daily basis. Where it sounds like there is the bandwidth to sort of be doing both, right? So, I mean, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it just sounds like there's people the the new concept folks. There's people who's like, that's your kind of fundamental task. And there's then the, how do we, you know, reduce impact? And it, it sounds like, frankly, you're in a, it's a kind of a luxury position where there get to be enough good minds thinking on both of those, thinking about both of those things at the same time.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I look back to when I was working primarily in, in outerwear design and it's still the same today as it was then is that the designers have the opportunity to be looking as far ahead as they want to look and we have the teams that can help them be with that lens so if a designer is like i want to solve a big problem in like the next three years they can do that as like their passion project at the same time as solving today's problems and i think that's what's really cool um about our design process but also like it's an awesome way for a designer to really have like all the tools in the toolbox, so to speak, because they can really be looking in the future at the same time as like working in the present. And I mean, it's just a matter of, of how we have set up problem solving. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, some Mm -hmm. brands are kind of just chasing, not brands, but some design processes are just chasing um, the next big thing and like the next widget. And that's, that's a whole other way to do it. It's just not the way we do it. So um we're looking at the long term the long term strategy and the long play versus just what's the first quick win um, I think I once hmm. heard from a teacher no shortcuts today I'm in a hurry um, hmm. and that's hmm. you know what I mean so if you hmm. do that extensive simplified design process you're gonna get great product and um, you know our our true north is to make sure that that um, ability to understand our impact is also just as important as our performance. And it's a, it's a crazy blend between the two. And we are constantly um, working through that. And it's, I think it's a pretty cool problem to have is that, how do you build the best product and cause no unnecessary harm?
0: I probably should, we should just leave it at that, but not before I ask you. So what's the best question I haven't asked you?
1: Well, the one question we talked about on the phone the other day, and you asked about inspiration, mm-hmm. and um, much like my favorite product, I'm not gonna give you a super detailed answer. I'm gonna keep <laughs> everything pretty like out there because um, I actually, both myself, I, I kind of did some soul searching. I was like, where do I get my inspiration from? And then I was like, you know, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna talk to like a bunch of my colleagues and a bunch of the other Material developers, designers, product developers—all the people that like that I work with um, often—and we all share a passion for snow. And what was super cool, and um, you know, my role now more in leadership and like mentoring, is that most derivatives of the answers came from aligning both passion and um, in-field use. And I just was so stoked to hear that. Is that? And it was everything from people talking about in your worst moments where you're running out of your last PB and J sandwich to dealing with your blisters to trying to get like up a skin track as fast as possible. It's those moments when there is that like clarity that I think creatives get. And, um, especially in like the outerwear side of things and like the snow sports. And I just love that. And then on the flip side, I got a ton of answers about um, various different things from automotive design to architecture, to museums, to music. And what I loved about it was, is that I also kind of thought about my answer and I was like, it's so funny because every once in a while, like if you ask that question, the answer changes because what you're Mm -hmm. super into right now might be totally different, but what you're, it's the ability to be into something and be inspired and be super connected to something that I think of what drives it. So I love the fact that it is like people getting out and using product is, it was like our foundation and everyone just loves what they do. And they absolutely like bring that passion to their work that they do. And then I loved how unique, like that someone really loves like motorcycle design. They just Mm -hmm. love old motorcycles to new motorcycles to someone, you know, talking a little bit more about like, electronics tech and like systems design to then like even as simple as like putting in a skin track and someone being like there's a really like you know traditional way with no kick turns and it's like really aligns with the environment you're skiing and like all that is all like different ways to kind of say the same answer is like inspiration comes from um the individual but it's like the ability to stay inspired is more important than what more important than what inspires you.
0: Well said. Well, Glenn, thank you so much for this. This has been really fun, and I think you know pulling back the curtain a bit on how Patagonia is doing things and and hearing your own backstory um, has just been really interesting. And and uh, this has been a pleasure. And and uh, I'm 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 glad Hoji uh, tipped me off to this and said, yeah, this is somebody you ought to talk to. Uh, this is this has been fruitful for sure.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much. What a cool thing to be able to catch up with you guys.
0: Well, thanks, Glenn. And uh, we'll talk to you again down the line sometime, I'm sure.
1: All right. Thanks so much.
0: Take care. Bye. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Glenn Morden for the conversation, to Eric Hjorlifson for the suggestion, and as always, to our strikingly handsome audio engineer, Justin Bob. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this Blister Podcast and our other podcasts, All Things Climbing and Gear 30 especially because if you like skiing or if you like mountain biking, I will bet you a beer that you are not going to want to miss our Gear 30 podcast this week. Of course, that is to also say that if you don't like skiing or mountain biking, then yeah, you can probably just go ahead and skip this Gear 30 episode this week. Anyway, um, thanks everybody. Take care and we will talk to you later.